Over the course of the summer, there was a discovery that severe late-stage COVID-19, which had been considered near-fatal, could be successfully treated with dextamethasone, a steroid. One of the key clinicians behind that discovery was Dr. Pierre Corey, the president of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, the FLCCC. Today, steroids are part of the standard COVID-19 pathway, in no small part due to the efforts of Dr. Corey and his colleagues. Last month, Dr. Corey again lit up the internet, giving a forceful testimony in front of the U.S. Senate Homeland Security Committee, describing the miraculous impact of the generic drug ivermectin in the treatment and prevention of COVID-19. Dr. Corey, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, definitely. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks uh, for having me. Can you just tell me a little bit about the FLCCC? Why did this specific group of internists decide to get together and become an official alliance? Yeah. So I would say it was started with Paul Marek. You know, when, when COVID started heading out to our shores, uh, you know, my colleague and good friend, Dr. Paul Marek, is uh, he's really world famous uh, in our specialty, which is uh, intensive care. We are internists, but we're also uh, what's called intensivists. So we're, we're specialists in uh, critical illness in the ICU. And people reached out and they knew of his protocols for other diseases like sepsis. And they said, hey, you got you to gotta work on something for COVID. And so he called us together. We're like some of his closest colleagues and friends. We've done research and written papers together. Uh, and we just came together. We started putting together what we thought were really important interventions to treat this disease. Um, I mean, it was wickedly severe, very high mortality. We were seeing really difficult cases in the ICU. And we put forth our protocol. And that first one was called MATH+. Plus. Uh, and it deals with a methylprednisolone, which is a corticosteroid. Uh, intravenous ascorbic acid, which is high-dose IV vitamin C, uh, thiamine, which is just basically just good to supplement in a lot of critical illnesses. And then we, we did anticoagulation, which is basically based on the three main pathophysiologies of the disease. Um, and I like to try to remind everyone that that's, it wasn't, it, it is evidence-based, <laughs> but not for COVID. It's expertise-based. You know, we, we based our knowledge and our experience on treating critical illnesses for decades, and that's how we came up with it. And, uh, we were roundly attacked for using that expertise without evidence. Um, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. I, I can't disagree more strongly with what I call, and I don't want to sound too derogatory, but um, we are experts in what's called evidence-based medicine. Um, I find that a lot of the practitioners actually are evidence-based maniacists. <laughs> and I see, I, it's just, it's very weird. I mean, evidence-based medicine is it has so many strengths, but it also has weaknesses. And anyway, before I go into that, so anyway, that's how we came together. Do you think you've been sort of sucked into the real world evidence, uh, observational data versus clinical trial debate? I mean, have you been sort of drag kicking and screaming into this oh, without no, choice? No, that's, or? <laughs> that's the debate that we start. So, you know, what I call evidence-based medicine nowadays, the way I look at it, it's the best word. And I borrowed it from an essay that actually a psychiatrist wrote about evidence-based medicine. And he called it uh, RCT fundamentalism, meaning that, that every doctor now does not want to hear of any information that doesn't come from a randomized controlled trial. It's truly unfortunate because there's a lot of actionable data that you can get from other parts. Yes, you have to use your judgment. You have to be aware of confounders. Uh, I mean, you have to weigh the balance and totality. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't go running into war with you know, one observational control trial that says what I believe. <laughs> no, we, we try to objectively sift through tons of data. And so, yeah, don't get me started on evidence-based medicine. But <laughs> going back to your question, yeah. So we knew corticosteroids were critical. And I'll give you, I'll, let me rattle off the four reasons why we knew that. Number one, 
based on our experience treating severe lung injury in the ICU, at that phase, it's really not the virus anymore. It's the, the response to the virus. So we knew corticosteroids were critical there. Number two, the entire world, every national, international healthcare agency was saying, do not use corticosteroids in COVID. Why? Why do you think that is? Okay, because it was on a misinterpretation of the former SARS, MERS, and H1N1 data. Because all of those other pandemics, when they did studies, post hoc observational studies, and they looked at uh, uh, corticosteroid use in, in SARS and MERS, they found that patients who got corticosteroids died at much higher rates. So they concluded that steroids were harmful. Okay. Now you have to look at that data carefully. And Dr. Berduri, one of our five, one of our original members, he published a paper in April, which carefully looked at all of the evidence from the prior pandemics. And when you actually control for severity of illness, dose and duration of corticosteroids, he actually concluded that corticosteroids were actually critical and life-saving in those pandemics. And the degree to which he, uh, his paper, along with five other experts, they concluded that the efficacy actually was the same efficacy that the recovery trial showed in June. Right. So we knew it from our reading of prior pandemic literature. We knew it based on our expertise in treating severe lung injury. And then I'll tell you how I most knew it. I knew it on the ground, meaning we were talking to people in China, in Italy, I'm from New York. I know every IC director in New York. And when, when New York got hit, and I'm just here in Wisconsin, I was talking to every one of my friends every day, and they were hurting. The patients were landing on ventilators. They were not getting off. They could get nothing out of these patients. They couldn't get them to move, progress, respond. And then some of them started using steroids, and they started to tell me that that made Because basically, once you ended up on a ventilator in the summer, that w- there was no recovery period after that. It was done. You were, yeah, especially without steroids. Without steroids, nothing nothing could reverse the process. Wow. Once they started using steroids, they, they were avoiding intubation, and they were leading to extubation. So so that was the steroid chapter. And, you know, um, out my senator, um, he, saw, he saw our group, he saw our protocol, and I think he just sort of was attracted to it because... At the time, every healthcare society was recommending supportive care only, right? So fluids, (laughs) uh, oxygen, ventilators, Tylenol for fever, just, you know, let the disease take its course and let the body fight it off. And when he saw- Basically, you're one step away from hospice, basically. (laughs) Or or, or just basically it's supportive care and prayer, you know? And so he saw our protocol and so he asked me to- testify on what we, why we came up with that protocol, what was the evidence. So I testified back in May in the Senate, uh, calling out to the world that we, this group of experts felt that uh, corticosteroids were life-saving. Um, I got attacked uh, roundly for that um, because it went against the entire world, essentially, um, until six weeks later when the Oxford trial on steroids in COVID was published and it showed that it was indeed life-saving. Let me pick up a couple points on that. When you folks had started figuring out that the steroids were working, how long was the period from when you saw that in clinical practice where it was adopted after the study? Did it take the study or was there a period of uptake? No, no, it took the study. It yeah. took this, Well, actually, I shouldn't say that because we sometimes use the phrase that people were uh, closeted, meaning <laughs> physicians were using steroids but there was no official hospital that was adopting to their protocol. Now you have to remember a physician, we ultimately decide what our patients get treated with. Some hospitals actually, especially in COVID, which I've never seen before, actually prevented use, yeah. prevented prescription of certain drugs. They actually restricted the autonomy of a physician to care for their patient. 
That's a whole other thing we could spend hours about. But so outside of that, though, many physicians started to use steroids because they believed it was effective. And I saw those fights break out in hospitals. I saw, you know, some some physicians who really felt it was important they use it and then everyone else attacked them. And so that was happening around the country, uh, sort of under the table. Sure. But once the recovery trial is published, every hospital, every nation, every national treatment guideline, especially the WHO, then recommended corticosteroids wide. And now it's the standard of care. So in May, you're invited to testify on the Hill. If you'd not been invited to testify in that Senate committee in May, do you think you would have seen practice change or would have taken longer, do you think? No, I think practice was going to change after that trial, no matter what I said. Okay. But in the, the six to eight weeks, I believe that my testimony made a big difference, but I can't quantitate. Meaning sure. people heard my message. I think a lot of doctors kind of agreed with me and my rationale. A lot of them appreciated that I was giving real-time, real-world data from guys on the front lines. And so I believe that many lives were saved, but I can't, I can't provide evidence for that, just uh, anecdotal. You know, the senator told me that many doctors wrote to him after my testimony, thanking him for having me on and that uh, it changed their practice, and they believe they helped many patients. You give your testimony, you go back into the clinic, and then you start looking into ivermectin. You just published a large meta-analysis outlining the potential of ivermectin, not only to treat, but also as a prophylactic. Yeah. Can you outline the research for us and what you guys stumbled onto? That's how we formed. We came up with our first protocol. And then from then on, <clears throat> we just studied, all we did is read papers. And we studied every therapeutic out there. We watched, you know, remdesivir and tocilizumab and monoclonal antibodies and convalescent plasma. We just reviewed everything. And if we thought that there was some supportive evidence or something to show that it was effective, we would incorporate it into our protocol. So we had, it's called Math Plus. We had a couple of adjunctive therapies. Now, we uh, used hydroxychloroquine for maybe five days. <laughs> we, net, we very quickly yeah. abandoned that because we didn't think it was effective, especially in the hospital. Um, and we started looking at other things. We always had ivermectin on our list with a question mark, meaning we just didn't have clinical data to support it. it. had a little bit of rationale, but we did not know of any data. And so from April until October, we did not recommend or have ivermectin in our protocols. But when we were reviewing a whole slew of trial results that came out in October, which basically put the, you know, a stake in the coffin of tocilizumab and convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies, they're all just failing on trial. Yeah. We saw a signal pop up around ivermectin. We saw one encouraging trial result, another one, another one, another, small from different centers and countries. And we said to ourselves, wow, it looks like there's something behind this medicine. And Dr. Marek gave a, a grand round sort of lecture at the end of October and then I started reading about it, and I was completely swayed by the data and how it was lining up. And so I started to work on the manuscript. Um, and so that was like early November. My preprint first hit, uh, my manuscript first hit a preprint November 13th. And the data has done nothing but get louder and stronger and bigger ever since. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly potent medicine against COVID. And we're trying to get the powers that be to understand that and to look at the data. There was a Argentinian study where they gave practitioners in a prophylactic setting, there was a preventative treatment and, and not a huge dose either, sort of- um, 12 milligrams is kind of a, depends how big you are. For me, it would be almost half what I need. <laughs> I'm a pretty big guy. Uh, but if, let's say your average adult, it's probably a reasonable dose. Um, you know, they give it every week for to a bunch of 
healthcare workers for about 10 months. And then the results of that were really striking. In that group of 800 or 788, not one got COVID. Um, And in the 400 that they followed that didn't take prophylaxis, uh, 58% or like 230 of the 400 some odd uh, got COVID. So it was a really striking result. And I have to say, that's if that was the only trial, let's say that was the only trial, I got to be honest, I would be like, this is too good to be true. I need to see more supportive data because I've never seen a result of that magnitude from an intervention. The, the issue is number of trials, similar design have shown same sort of large magnitude reductions in transmission. And by the way, that's only the prevention trials. Sure. We're not even talking about the treatment, early treatment and late treatment trials, which is a whole host of other trials. And so but the prevention are some of the most striking reductions in transmission when you look at the repeated trial. We have like things, we're up to eight trials. Uh, three of them randomized with like 700 patients and the others are actually pretty good prospective observational trials. So they're actually fairly well designed. And there was recently um, a Lancet study, quite small, 24 patients out of Spain. Yep. It didn't show um, outcomes, but it showed time of disease was like, you know, a third. I mean, it was unbelievable, the reduction. Uh, the days of anosmia, the days of cough, uh, I mean, strikingly reduced. Uh, again, that was a small trial, but it, right. listen, if you're someone who doesn't have a taste of smell and you're, you know, the days that you suffer that or have, <laughs> I think you'd take it. And that's the least of what ivermectin can accomplish. So there's been a lot of blowback and a certain amount of cynicism regarding some of these outcomes-based trials, obviously the hydroxychloroquine debacle and and all the politicization of that. What do you tell people who are questioning the results as painting you as sort of a political actor, which unfortunately happened in your testimony, which I was quite appalled by? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky one. So the the problem was, is that the chairman of the committee obviously was uh, right-wing and Republican, my senator. I, I personally am not. Uh, I, I try to answer that science has nothing to do with politics, right? We're about the data, and I don't know that the right or the left uh, should influence that data. Sure. So although I've been painted with a political brush, I, I really do try to fight against that because I, I, am, I have nothing to do with politics, and my message is not political. It's scientific. And so, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. There's been some politicians who took stands on medicines throughout this pandemic, and I think it's somehow polarized it politically, but I, but I really try to just move past that. I don't think others do, but I do. Um, I, I really just want to focus on the data. So you must be having a certain amount of deja vu again about what happened with the steroids. Oh, yeah. You're invited to testify. <laughs> this is longer and stronger. When I, when I came out with steroids, it was six weeks later that the world changed. Now I am like, uh, I don't know, it's over two months and it's going to be a little longer before the world changes, but we'll get there. So you pointed out on your during your Hill testimony that ivermectin was on the NIH's naughty list. It wasn't allowed for clinical use outside of a randomized clinical trial. What's happened since you gave your testimony on the yeah, Hill? Yeah, so I gave testimony and then a month later on January 6th, uh, we were invited to present to the NIH treatment guidelines panel which we did. So I presented all of my data. And we also asked Dr. Andrew Hill, who's the expert consultant hired by UnitAid and the WHO to look at repurposed drugs. And his team since late November has done nothing but look at ivermectin. And his story and and the WHO story is kind of interesting because he was hired in June to look at repurposed drugs. So they had a program to look at repurposed drugs. And he looked at about six molecules since June that purported to maybe have some efficacy. They all failed. They either showed negative results or just really mixed non-actionable results. And then uh, actually in his words, because he and I, we, we collaborate and we talk all the time. 
He said the same thing happened to him when he when someone told him to look at ivermectin in November, he saw like first trial, second trial, third trial, and he also became very moved by by the direction and signal uh, of the data. And so since then, they've done nothing but twenty four seven ivermectin. So his data is actually more granular uh, than mine because him and his team they establish a network of communication with every active trialist in the world who's running a randomized controlled trial of ivermectin. So his scope of work is only treatment and only randomized controlled trials. And, and so he's been great to collaborate with and share new data with. And so we asked him to, to present with us. And so he presented to the uh, NIH. And then two weeks later, they changed the recommendation in a very um, equally satisfying and unsatisfying way, meaning <laughs> they, they, they okay. no longer recommend against use but they didn't go so far as to recommend it. They left it as a neutral, saying uh, insufficient evidence to recommend for or against, which I think is completely not supported by the data. The data supports at least a cautious recommendation. And what's been your experience in the clinic? So I have been treating many, many friends and family. I mean, this is a pandemic. And so I've been treated. I am not uh, in a clinic setting right now, so I'm treating as a physician in community. Uh, but I have uh, a, a large network of people that I've been treating. Um, it's It's been really, I mean, again, no one wants to hear about my experience because no one's going to be swayed by it. But I will just tell you as a clinician, um, it's very rare that I get such tight temporal associations between belief of symptoms. Meaning if I treat someone, and what, what's impressed me the most is when I treat people with five to seven days of symptoms, they're really not doing well. Let's say on a Friday and I give them the ivermectin, they take it at noon. The next morning, they start to tell me that within 24 hours, generally they feel a, a, a palpable relief of symptoms. Um, and so I'm finding these very robust responses to ivermectin. Uh, and I haven't treated anyone that actually only one person had to go to the hospital, but they were quite late in their disease already. It was actually a physician um, uh, who actually had to go to the hospital, but they did all right in the end. Have your colleagues in the FLCCC had similar results to what you're finding? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we're all we're all uh, treating people with uh, with ivermectin that we come across. Joe Verone has, and Umberto Maduri, and, and Jose Iglesias. Certainly, family members of that. Actually, every single one of them, except for maybe Verone, has had family members ill with COVID that they've treated. Um, we're also all prophylaxing with ivermectin. So you said in your testimony, as far as you were aware, that there was no committee or team looking at repurposing drugs specifically for COVID nineteen at that point. Obviously, NIH has NCATS, which is supposed to be there to repurpose and, and fund for you know tens of millions of dollars a year. It's like, you know, they have committees and official meetings and notes and everything that a government body does. You're correct. We haven't really seen those institutions hit a home run, as it were. Yet you guys now twice it would appear have you know hit pay dirt. Why do you think you folks are getting results where some of these organizations that are entrusted and paid to do so are not. We're not doing kind of new molecule research. We're not pharmaceutical companies. That's the only thing that we do is look at what we have, which are repurposed drugs. Um, and I agree with you. Yes, there are repurposed drug programs as part of the NIH where they look at things for like cancer and other things. But for COVID, I really didn't see a big emphasis. I mean, I'm aware now in the last couple of months there have been some trials around famotidine, you know, the acid suppressant, cetirizine. Like, I, I know there's some trials that are being launched looking at some repurposed molecules, but it's it's been compared to the <laughs> hundreds of millions and billions on vaccines. I mean, 
the effort and the resources deployed to repurpose drugs is is almost insignificant yeah. uh, compared to what we've employed on novel biologics. I mean, giving all these pharmaceutical companies all this money to develop uh, new monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. I mean, I mean, I'm not against that. Uh, I just I just think it was a missed opportunity to also equally fund repurposed drugs, which are generally cheaper, more widely available. And look at ivermectin. It's a pill. It's a pill. Where was the emphasis on early treatment? Everything else was hospital-based. It's yeah. People don't want to go to the hospital and get better. They want to get better before <laughs> going to the hospital. So I don't know. It sometimes makes too much sense. Well, I was reading that since you've come out publicly now twice and stuck your head over the parapet, as it were, you've paid a bit of a price internally with some of your colleagues and things. How has the response been internally? Have you had to fight a bit? And do you regret coming forward? Do you think in retrospect it was worth it career-wise? No, I don't regret it all. Um, I am where I am, and it's a good place, and I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm very happy to do it. You know, my first institution uh, was the University of Wisconsin. Actually, I left there. Uh, I actually resigned from there the same day I gave testing. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and the reason why is I had already been through uh, a lot of heartache with that institution. I was the chief of the critical care service. I was a medical director of the ICU. And I was being told by everyone around me in that institution that I needed to focus on supportive care only. Every time I brought up the need for an anticoagulation protocol for blood thinning because they were clotting like crazy and or a steroid protocol, uh, I was being shouted down. And my protocol of uh, IV ascorbic acid for severe lung injury also were just completely being dismissed. So I asked for a humanitarian leave and I went to New York where I was able to treat patients the way I felt and I had a lot of freedom. And so I ran an ICU in New York City in May and I never went back to the uh, University of Wisconsin. I just felt um, my five years in the ivory tower were done. I, <laughs> it just wasn't really a, a, a good fit for me. It was very, very restrictive. Um, and I just didn't have the freedoms to be the doctor that I wanted to do. So I left there willingly. Uh, after the second testimony, it was, uh, yeah, a little bit more contentious. Uh, my employers, I don't think, um, and I'll be fair to them, I don't think they liked the uh, attention being brought to the institution. Sure. They accused me of uh, claiming my opinions were theirs, and I don't remember ever doing that. Um, but they, all institutions, when you speak publicly, they will tell you that you are speaking on their behalf. Sure. I always say, I don't remember saying I was the spokesperson. Um, usually when you're speaking on an institution, we have usually it says spokesperson for that institution. So, it's usually on the business cards too. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I, you know, but, but they really got very angry. And, then, and so they, ended, they, they gave me a new contract. They offered me a new contract to stay. And that new contract essentially involved about 12 restrictions on my First Amendment rights. <laughs> Uh, you know, whereas basically any sentence I would utter from thenceforth would begin like this. Before I talk to you, I need to let you know that these opinions are my my opinions, my opinions alone and not that of my employer. Sure. And so unless I wanted to do that by the rest of my life, I, I just said no, thank you. So it is what it is. Um, but I'm happy you're doing what I'm doing now. You know, my, our nonprofit is extremely busy. We're doing really important work and we're making so many um Lovely, wonderful successes. The amount of countries and regions and cities uh, and physicians around the world that write to us. And if you look at the world map, like we have a map where we're keeping track of all the countries that are adopting their protocols. Like it's populating, it's getting colored in. You know, the big US and European ones, there's a blank there. <laughs> but, but a lot of the other countries and regions 
uh, you know, they're, they're adopting it. So uh, we're, we're very pleased with the attention that we've brought to ivermectin. It's a life-saving drug. We know it. We have the data to prove it. Uh, and that's all I do is I try to get that word out. And it's, uh, it's, an, it's interesting work. You've published a protocol. How do people get a hold of that protocol if they were interested? How could doctors download it? Where, where can they find so it? It's on our website. So it's flccc.net. So flccc.net. Uh, and we have, it's called the eye mask protocol. So that's the one for prophylaxis and early outpatient. Uh, and then we have our, tra- you know, our, our older math plus protocol, which also has ivermectin in it. And um, that's for the hospital. It's more for physicians because that's usually administered by physicians. Well, they're all actually all are, but, um, but we encourage folks to, to download um, either the protocol, but more importantly, my manuscript. The problem is most physicians won't read the manuscript. Uh, we have like a one-page summary of the existing data. What's nice is our manuscript was actually went through three rounds of peer review, and it's about to be published within the next week in a, quite a prominent journal. Um, and it went through a pretty rigorous peer review. We had uh, actually two of the re- peer reviewers, it's actually published on the paper, were um, FDA employees, Food and Drug Administration employees. So, um, you know, it got good attention. But in that paper, we conclude based on the totality of evidence, not only the trials evidence, but the epidemiologic evidence, and that to me is the most compelling, is we have this analyst who actually just put up their preprint, and they just submitted for peer review too. These studies of all these regions around the world where they had ivermectin distribution campaigns, which basically led to dramatic reductions in death and case counts where it's used. So it is going to be part of the global solution along with the vaccines, and it's a bridge to the vaccines, it's a safety net to the vaccines, and I'm just so happy we have another tool in the, in, in the toolkit uh, to fight this pandemic. And so, uh, but we just got to make sure people know it's out there. Yeah. And the WHO also funded a, uh, a meta-analysis review from the University of Liverpool that was also very favorable as well. So that's Dr. Hill. That's Dr. Hill. And so he put his preprint up. And since that time, more randomized controlled trials are coming out. I, we think he's going to be presenting to WHO in March, probably early March. My hopes... And every time I hope this, I'd probably have to tack on two weeks or a month. But <laughs> my hopes is that by mid-March, there's going to be enough patient data from this meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials up near 4,000 patients, which is actually more treated patients than what, randomized, than what the recovery trial had. I think the WHO will be able to make a recommendation by then. And I think just like the recovery trial with Oxford changed the care of the hospitalized patient overnight, once the WHO makes their recommendation – worldwide it would be adopted. That's my belief and that's my hope. But I think the WHO has to lead the way because no other country is doing what they're doing, which is really looking at and gathering all of these small trials and looking at it into a big meta-analysis. So if a patient or someone was interested in getting on the prophylactic pathway, what recommendation would you give for them to approach that with their practitioner? Uh, On our website, we have uh, an FAQ, a Frequently Asked Questions uh, section. Uh, and uh, question number two is exactly that question. I, I'm interested in uh, having my PCP or pr- primary care provider uh, prescribe it for me. How do I do it? Uh, usually, first we say bring this information to your provider, see if they are swayed by it. Uh, we find that it sways about 10 to 15% of providers. The vast majority will say, no, it's not recommended. It's not in the guidelines and they just don't want to touch it. In which case, we have a whole directory of telehealth providers on our website in that same FAQ section. Uh, and, and they're all telehealth providers that actually believe in the efficacy of ivermectin and are willing to prescribe it. The costs vary. Some of them are actually fairly modest. Uh, I, 
I know one provider is as low as $45 a visit, some around 60 and some are a little bit more. But, you know, there are telehealth providers that are willing to help people or get a, get out of mental and protect themselves. What recommendation can you give to other practitioners who are in your situation who may see something that looks good but runs contrary to the uh, current opinion? This explanation may be helpful because there's a disconnect, right? You have this guy, Dr. Corey, and our group, right, Dr. Merrick and the FLCCP. We're running around saying that ivermectin is the cure for COVID or, or probably the most effective treatment for COVID. Yet, there's radio silence from some of those high-income countries' regulatory bodies. So where's the disconnect? I think it's helpful if I explain the following. Those countries with very advanced, highly structured regulatory bodies, they have these time-honored process with extensive routes to verification, extremely bureaucratic. And generally, the only thing that can pass through those regulatory sort of screens is large, thousand-patient, placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trial, generally funded by either a pharmaceutical company or funded by a huge government grant. And that's the fuel on which those regulatory processes run. What we have is we don't have that for Ivermectin. What we have is a collection of small trials, a growing collection of small trials from multiple centers and countries around the world. But it gives these regulatory bodies fits because they're used to like a big dossier where the same molecule by the same manufacturer was distributed in a very controlled way. They have oodles of patient level data, safety data, adverse effects. So like they don't even have any questions. They're given everything on a platter. Ours is a little bit rougher, right? And it's a little bit more fragmented. The trials vary in size and design. You know, the, the, the manufacturers in those trials are different. They come from different countries. So I, I feel like we give the regulators seizures. But on a common sense, on a common sense, it's like, we don't have that trial. This is what we have is we have a meta-analysis. The meta-analysis is screaming efficacy. So what I would say to the providers is read, read our manuscript. I, I, you cannot walk away from our manuscript without being convinced of the overwhelming totality of the data supporting the efficacy of, of ivermectin. So that's all I can say is read and use your judgment. But there is an early treatment option that's highly effective and we recommend that you use ivermectin. Dr. Corey, Pierre, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. This Vital Health Podcast has been brought to you by Pharma CCX, an independent third-party technology platform focused on improving patient outcomes. They help both sides of the negotiation reach access agreements more efficiently so that patients can get the complex therapies, including combination oncology, they need to survive. That's Pharma CCX.